this morning. God bless you all. It's good to have you in the house of the Lord together once again. Amen. We just want to enter in tonight, or this morning, excuse me, and worship and praise. And I hope you'll join with me in giving God the glory. It's good to see Brother Wayne Coffee and his family. We've got the Paschals with us this morning, so we're happy to have them as well. Amen. And all of you that are gathered together, amen. Let's just enter right in and and praise the Lord. Let's sing of the power of His love together, amen. Lord, I come to You. Let my heart be changed and renewed, flowing from the Yeah. 
Shout to the Lord. My Jesus, my Savior, Lord, there is none like you in all of my days. I want to praise the wonders of your mind. My comfort, my shelter, tower of refuge and strength. Oh, let every breath all that I am never cease to worship you.
mountains bow down at the, oh, at the sound of your name. And I'll sing for joy at the work of your hand. Forever I'll love you. I have no nothing compares to the promise I have no nothing compares to the promise I have in you Amen you love him why don't you give him a hand this morning Hallelujah we praise you Lord Jesus Amen amen Hallelujah just sounds so nice when you worship that way. Amen. Why don't we just continue singing? I'd like to sing that song, The Days of Elijah. Amen. These are the days of Elijah. Declaring the word of the Lord. These are the days of your servant, Moses. Righteousness being and though these are days of great trials, come on now, famine and darkness and sore, still we are the voice in the desert crying, prepare ye the way of the Lord, behold he comes, riding on the clouds. Shining like the sun At the trumpet's call Lift your voice It's a year of jubilee And out of Zion's hill Salvation comes Well, these are the days of Ezekiel Oh, the dry bones becoming as flesh are the days of your servant David rebuilding the temple of praise and these are the days of the harvest oh the fields are as wide in the world and we are the laborers in your vineyard declaring the word At the trumpet's call, lift your voice, it's a year of jubilee, and out of Zion's hill salvation comes. Listen now. There's no God like Jehovah, well there's no God like Jehovah, well there's no God like Jehovah, there's no God like Jehovah. There's no God like Jehovah, there's no God like Jehovah, there's no God like Jehovah, behold He comes, oh riding on the cloud, shining like the sun, at the trumpet's call. 
praise him hallelujah amen why don't we sing that song lord i give you my heart give you my soul oh lord i give you my heart i give you my soul and i live for you lord every breath that i take every moment i'm Every moment 
Troubling us in the week's events. You know, probably been running like mad. And you're finally here. Amen. We're a place of rest and worship. Amen. We just want to take advantage of this time. Amen. While you're standing, and I'll let you have your seats in just a moment, uh, we're going to mention some special needs. And I'm going to ask Brother Wayne Coffee if he would be prepared to take these needs before the Lord for us. Amen. And maybe while you're up here, Brother, you could give us a special. You could do that. Man. Man, it's good to have them with us. We want to remember uh, Brother Stephen and Sister Sarah in prayer. <clears throat> They're not with us today. And uh, also the McCafferty family, Ben and his family. We just want to remember them in prayer. Uh, I have a request here to remember Sister Mary Smith uh, in prayer. Uh, we want to remember the Hughes family, Brother Troy and Sister Connie. Man, dealing with the loss of their loved one there. We just want to keep them in our prayers. <clears throat> want to remember the Buchanan uh, family. They're also not with us. Uh, and Sister Sarah Visaki is not here as well. Amen. And if you would keep Sister Jessie Cockman in your prayers uh, with the issue she's been dealing with. Amen. I don't see the Irish family here, so if we could remember them in prayer as well. And uh, we have a special need as well for Sister Erica Reagan, Brother Donnie's, Reagan's daughter. And she's going through some testing. And we just want to remember her in prayer in that situation. Amen. I have another request here from Sister Shirley Lingle. Uh, this is, she states to please keep praying for her mother, Sister Della can't pronounce the last name there, but one of Clunch. Okay, let's remember her in prayer. She saw their doctor uh, for a checkup this last week, and uh, the vertebrae in her back seems stable now. So she is starting therapy, and hopefully, in a few months, she may be able to return to her home. Amen. So let's keep her and her family member in prayer. Amen. That's all I have at this time. And if you have spoken prayer requests. You can make those known. Brother Wayne, if you would come on at this time and take these needs before the Lord for us. Amen. Hallelujah. Bless you, God bless you this morning. Good to see each one. Amen. Let's just bow our heads in prayer. Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning, Lord. Realizing our need today that we need to draw closer. We need your word this morning. We need that revelation in our life, Lord. And it seems that we can never get enough, Lord, of the good things of God, your word. We're thankful for your presence and your spirit here this morning, Lord. May we just, Lord... Uh, Lord, just yield ourselves, Lord, to the Spirit this morning to worship You and praise You, Lord, for the good things You have done, Lord. These many requests have been made known this morning, Lord. And Father God, I know that You are mindful, Lord, of these needs. And the enemy is out to stop each one, Lord, especially our ministry, Lord. 
Oh God, this morning, Lord, He's using everything He can, Lord, but You're more powerful. Lord, we know You are victorious, Lord, and we look to You for victory. Lord, for Sister Erica, Lord, we're praying for her, God. Lord, that You would just bring a marvelous victory, Lord, of healing in her life, Lord. These others this morning, Lord, the need today, Lord, has been made known. We pray, Lord, you just move and bless and meet these needs in a special way. Lord, come into this service this morning, Lord. And Lord, have your way, Lord. May you just move, Lord, and have your will that it would be done, Father. Lord, we pray in the lovely name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen, amen. And as Sister Sister Coffee is making her way forward, why don't we sing a song? God will make a way. God will make a way Where there seems to be no way works in ways we cannot
family. Amen. It's good to have them with us. Enjoyed that special, brother and sister. Amen. Let's all stand. Leave it's time for the word to be ministered. Amen. As Brother Barry comes to break the bread of life, you just pull on the gift. Amen. There's something in there for everyone here today. Amen. There's an answer for you. Amen. Whatever you're going through. So let's sing together. I sing praises to your name as our pastor makes his way. I sing praises to your name, O Lord, praises to your name, O Lord, for your name is great and greatly. I sing praises to your name, O Lord, praises to your name, O Lord, for your name is great and greatly to be praised. Oh, I sing praises to your name, oh Lord, praises to your name, oh Lord, for your name is great and greatly to be praised, I sing praises to
Lord Jesus, great master, we de- desire, Lord, that you would just move among us today in a very special and a personal way. We reserve this time and this place for you now, Lord. It's been our expectation over these past few days, Lord, just to be able to meet in your presence, to be able to come together, Lord, and to just to be able to worship you in spirit and in truth. And now today, Lord, I just pray that you would push away last week and next week and just allow us, Lord, to, to just benefit from the presence of the Lord that we feel here today. We thank you, Lord Jesus, because when we come and gather in your name, Lord, then we believe you show up. And Lord, you just delight to dwell in the praises of your people. Forgive us, Lord, of anything that might be contrary to the moving of the Holy Spirit. And Lord, just I pray, bring healing to all those who need it today. We just give you our time. We give you our minds. We give you our gifts and talents. We give you everything, Lord, that we thought we knew. And ask you and invite you, Lord, just to change everything so it matches your kingdom. And it matches your word. Have your way now among us, we pray. We love you and we thank you for each these that have come today and may now your holy spirit bless us lord i pray in the name of jesus christ we ask these things amen and amen i'd like to have you sing one more little chorus have your way and just want to sing that one time and then we'll uh, look to the lord this morning have your way have your way have your way Holy Spirit fill our hearts and have your way and as we Good to be in the house of the Lord this morning. If you bring up my PowerPoint there, let's read in Philippians chapter 3 this morning, and we'll read just so we can uh, have you take your seats, and then uh, we won't interrupt that uh, process. So Philippians chapter 3, uh, we welcome all of you here this morning, and good to have our guests and visitors and friends here. May the Lord richly bless you. We are... Um, also aware of a great group that are online and listening. Pascal, isn't it? There, there we go. God bless you. Good to have you. We have missed you. Philippians chapter 3, verse 13. Let's begin there this morning. Brethren, I count not myself to have apprehended, but this one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forth unto those things which are before. I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. May the Lord add his blessing, wave to one another before you're seated tonight, and may God, this morning, and may God bless you. You may be seated. Now, uh, just 
by way of a couple of announcements here, I wanted to just uh, bring here just very briefly. Uh, we are certainly mourning with uh, Brother Troy and Sister Connie over the loss of uh, their son, Eric, uh, who had multiple complications and with the COVID virus and uh, passed away on Friday night. He is the father of Kristen and uh, Brad and Caitlin and uh, Caitlin and Carrie. And uh, we certainly want to hold him up in prayer and uh, just trust that the Lord will be merciful in the days that, uh, that lay ahead. And I was speaking with uh, Brother Troy and Sister Connie, and uh, today they're with family. And unfortunately, in, in the times that we're living in, it's just difficult to you know be able to gather and uh, funerals and all the rest of it, but uh, I know they would love to hear from you, and it would be nice to reach out to them. Uh, just like I mentioned uh, yesterday about the Smiths, you know, we're not able to see the Smiths, but uh, they're, they're go, just going through a difficult time, and it would be nice to reach out to them. But for Troy and Connie, we want to um, just maintain contact with them, especially over the next few days. Uh, my sister came through her surgery. I mentioned that last week, and several of you have asked me about that, which I appreciate, and she appreciated as well. Uh, lives up in Newfoundland, Canada, and uh, she uh, came through very well. She's resting and uh, got out of the hospital, so she's doing, uh, doing better. We're trusting this is the last time she'll have to, to do that. This is the third surgery that she's had. Um, we also uh, want to welcome today uh, Chris Clavel, and uh, good to have him here today. This is uh, the notorious brother of uh, Jeremy, and uh, we're glad to have him today and to announce that we would like to welcome him and his family to HBT. And Lord willing, by the end of the year, Chris, Keisha, Titus, Anthony, and Allura are all going to be with us, and uh, we welcome you, and may the Lord richly bless you. Uh, your wife is here, right? Sister Keisha is here. She's out uh, in Siberia, so we are uh, glad to have you with us today, and may the Lord richly bless you. Uh, for our visitors and all of our friends who are here, Sister Tracy, God bless you. Good to have you here today. And uh, the Hendershots and uh, each one, uh, Jared and Betsy, God bless you. Hardly strangers, but uh, good to have you. Birthdays, uh, Harrison Jackson, and you were going to sing special today, weren't you, for your, no, not today, okay, just checking, July 27th, uh, Harrison's birthday, that's tomorrow, right, is it, how old are you going to be tomorrow, 15, really, wonderful, best 15 years of your life, July 28th, Sister Caitlin Brown's birthday, right, Sister Caitlin, God bless you, and that's also Miles Coffey's birthday, Miles, how old are you going to be on your birthday? Four years old, he says. Four years old. God bless you, Miles. Just wanted to show you a couple of, not only is Miles smiling big down there, but uh, these are folks in Mexico who uh, July, uh, this just uh, the last week, uh, received their church age books. And these are people that are scattered out uh, in Mexico and they're receiving their, uh, their own books in uh, the Spanish language, so we're just excited about that. With, uh, with the 5,000 books that they've received, there's 10,000 uh, uh, copies of the resume 
that also was sent to them. So they got, uh, they got those for handing out and witnessing to people, and they have their own uh, church age book that they're able to have because there's so many believers in this part of the world, uh, you know, they don't want to be giving out the church age books on the street unless they, somebody, you know, really wants to study the message and believe it. So we printed chapter 10, and uh, that's relatively small, and they're able to give that out as a witnessing tool and put their church name on the back of it so somebody could find out where they can get more. We just received information uh, this week that uh, we have the uh, uh, South America, all from Mexico City and down, has been locked down uh, with the virus, and so the government just shut everything down, their offices and all the uh, interaction within their communities there. So we have not been able to get shipping information into the other three countries. And uh, we just got information for Honduras this week. And so, Lord willing, uh, the books will be on the way to Honduras. Uh, matter of fact, there's been a backup of uh, shipping out of China because all of the uh, uh, nations that they normally ship to, which is every nation on earth, uh, they've all been locked down because of the virus. And uh, so they, we've had to pay storage, actually, of books that are already printed over there, but it's only a minimal amount, and then it'll go out from there uh, to our delivery points. So uh, we're glad to see those things finally moving now and finally opening up. All right. Let me give you a little statement here to begin. We have been talking about the subject of fathers and fatherhood and uh, things related to that over the last little while. And I appreciate your comments and the feedback that you give me over this last little bit. This week, though, I just felt a little uh, pull to do something a little different. And this is going to be more of my type of big picture presentation of things that are taking place in the world today that are relevant to us. All right? So I, I, I don't want to... Uh, be drawn into the discussion about, uh, you know, whether this, this is right or that's right about the virus. That's not my, not my concern. My objective, rather, is to stand back and look at the situation that we find ourselves in, knowing that uh, a prophet uh, who came to us in this last day prophesied about all kinds of things that were going to happen in the end time. And even though he told us scripturally how things were going to how, you know, how things are going to happen and, and the, the wind-up. He actually gives us the order of events and how things are uh, going to conclude. He doesn't say, uh, he doesn't give all the details about exactly what will happen first and second and third and fourth and how we will have, uh, you know, this event happen and this event happen and something else. He just simply makes statements like this. He says, the world is falling apart. Well, now... Now we know the world can fall apart in a number of different ways. It can fall apart medically. It can fall apart financially. It can fall apart socially, right? There's a lot of different things that happen. And, and truly, when, when a kingdom is falling apart, when a kingdom's coming down, it's usually not just because of one thing, but many things that undermine the strength of that nation and take away the things that it once stood upon, and then it falls down. Well, we look at the whole world, and the whole world is changing around us. Who, who, would have, who, who could have known that a few months ago something would have showed up in our world that literally, literally handcuffed the entire world and made it act differently? The whole world, all at the same time. Basically, 
Within a very short uh, number of weeks, the whole world has been affected by the virus that struck and, and all the other things now that are, that are spawned as a result of that. And now we're living in this cycle or this spiral where things are moving, and it sure does not seem like anybody really has an answer to the whole momentum that this has created. Okay, so we all know that, right? You didn't need to come to church to know that. We could have just put on CNN and had a ticker running on the bottom of the screen and kept you up with all the headlines that everybody keeps up with. But I will tell you this. I wanted to ask the question, what are the people in the world saying about the hope that lays ahead of us? And then what hope do we have? Or in other words, how does this relate to us? How do we relate differently than how the world does? And I wanted to ask that, I was asking that question to myself, and I went on a search, and I started to hunt, and I was, I was consumed with this word hope. So you can, I've said this before jokingly, because this is a phrase that Spurgeon once actually used. He said, you can take your theological guns and slide them back into your theological holsters. And uh, this is not so much that type of a doctrinal sermon here this morning, but I wanted to give you something to think about that you could walk away with and say, huh. That's really all my purpose is this morning. So I want you to take a, take a, a journey with me, if you like. And I wanted to uh, just begin by doing a little kind of a typical study that we would do on a word that we find in our text here this morning. And then I want to uh, just kind of stand back and look at the things that are being said out there in the world. And then I want to answer, attempt to answer the question for us that we would ask, because we are not under the direction of the world, thank God. Uh, we are not moving in the direction with the world, thank God. So then what do we absolutely know for sure that we can bank on, that we can count on, us as believers now? Because it's either right or it's wrong. The message is either right or it's wrong. And, you know, it's been easy to say that and to act, uh, you know, act accordingly up to now. But now we're finding out that we're moving into a cycle where uh, you're going to have to believe the right thing. You're going to have to believe the right thing. You're going to have to be in the right place in order to get out of here and go to the other right place. So you, there's, there's some things here that we're going to have to reckon with personally uh, before this is all over. And the beginning of that, the beginning of that is upon us. The beginning of that realization that, uh, you know, our world truly is falling apart and there's probably not going to be an election that's going to repair it. That's upon us. So walk with me for a few moments here. Brother Branham says, we're taught in the Bible. This is 1957. This is 63 years ago. I know that very well. We're taught in the Bible that Jesus was a lamb slain from the foundation of the world. And we understood that he wasn't slain really until 4,000 years later. But when God spoke the word, it was a finished work when God spoke it. Stop right there. He's giving us a principle that we need to, uh, we need to just articulate. But I know that you believe this is not one you would struggle with. That when God says something, God thinks it and becomes a, you know, it's a thought of God and becomes a word of God and it's expressed. It is, it is something that right then you can literally take to the bank. It's going to happen. It's not a matter of if it'll happen. It's a matter of when it'll happen, right? This is what he's telling us here, that God said that this lamb was slain from before the foundation of the world. Well, Jesus didn't literally bleed and die back there. That took 4,000 years to come to pass, and it eventually did. But to God, it's just as real back there as it is when Jesus 
walked up Calvary's hill and dragged that cross behind him. Are we okay? So when God speaks it, it's as real to God as when it happens and we see it, and then we say it becomes real to us. So when God's word is spoken, or we could say it this way, the spoken word of God uh, is absolutely perfectly true and something that is going to come to pass in God's time. There's nothing that God has spoken that will fail. There's nothing, I said, there's nothing in God's, God's economy in, in the Bible. There's nothing that God has spoken that will not come to pass. That's a double negative. So let's say it this way. Everything that God said will come to pass. Right? Everything that God said will come to pass. Do you believe that? Even if it hasn't happened, the important thing is that it's spoken. That's what's important. I find amongst American Christians, that's us. That's us. I find among American Christians that the great lack that they have, or the thing that that weakens a lot of people, is fear. The American Christian seems to be afraid that God won't keep his word. Now, Brother Brown was making this observation in 1957, uh, and he's describing what he sees. He's looking at what, what is happening here and maybe conversations that he's had. He said, it's nothing that you can do. In the beginning, it's what God has done. So he's re- you see what he's doing? He's reminding us that there's a lot of people who feel like uh, there are certain things that God has said that haven't come to pass yet. And because we don't see it happen, maybe there's a doubt as to whether it will come to pass. But you know what? It's not anything that you can do about this anyway. God has spoken it. It's what God has done. So put your trust in that in the same way as we found in the first paragraph. Are we okay? You see what he's doing? He's reminding us that there's a lot of people around us have fear because in 1957 there were some things that were pretty, uh, you know, pretty concerning that were taking place in society. And, you know, we're, uh, we're uh, moving, you know, towards the Vietnam War and uh, all the other upheavals that are beginning to take place and, the under, you know, the underpinnings of that all were happening in 1957 and moving towards, uh, you know, the uh, J. Edgar Hoover and the UFOs and all the other things that, uh, that were happening in 1957. And here's Brother Bram said, when I go and I, I minister in places, I find people afraid. And they're basically afraid that God's word actually will not come to pass. But he said, you know what? It's nothing that you can, nothing that you can do in the beginning. It's what God has done. So before all of this trouble has, has struck our world, God has already thought about that. And God's already spoken certain things for our time. And you know what? I'd have to say it to you like this. God's got it. He's got it. It's under control. It may not be coming out like you thought. But that's really not a great surprise. But you know what? God's got it under control. It's going to happen exactly the way he said, and nothing's going to stop the fulfillment of his word. Are we okay? All right. Now, in Isaiah 54, I'd like you, if you don't mind, just to turn in your Bible here. Keep your Bible open to Philippians if you have that. And I'd like you to go to uh, Isaiah chapter 54. We have referred to this chapter a little bit uh, recently. And I'd like to just go back and revisit a few verses here this morning. And this is just something that I want you to keep in mind because it's a promise to a believer in Isaiah chapter 50, 54. We could read the whole chapter. I don't know whether it was mentioned in Brother Aaron's out in Arizona today, but Brother Aaron is gone. His family is here. And uh, Brother Aaron is away ministering. And then Michigan next week, right? Maybe. All right. 
Isaiah chapter 54, verse 13. And all thy children, and all thy children shall be taught of the Lord, and great shall be the peace of thy children. Now, Isaiah is writing to people who have gone through great captivity, great turmoil. If you don't mind, just go back to verse 7 here, and you get the sense of the compassion that God speaks to Israel with. And remember now, Israel being the wayward, disobedient people that they were, he says, For a small moment have I forsaken thee, but with great mercies I will gather thee. In a little wrath I hid my face from thee for a moment, but with everlasting kindness will I have mercy on thee, saith the Lord thy Redeemer. So, yes, I did this. I hid my face from you, but I'm back. And, and I, was, I was upset with you, but you know what? I've forgiven you. And, and I dealt with judgment, but I'm back with mercy. And, and that's the whole tone of the chapter that, uh, you know, God, is, uh, God, God wants his people to know that even though there have been mistakes made and there's a judgment cycle that's ongoing here, I still love you because you're the apple of my eye and you're my predestinated people and, you know what, I love you. At the end of the day, I want you to go to sleep knowing that I love you and I care for you. And, and that's, what he's, that's what he's conveying here uh, in, in uh, Isaiah 54. Drop down to verse 10. For the mountains shall depart, and the hills be removed, but my kindness shall not depart from thee. Neither shall the covenant of my peace be removed, saith the Lord, that hath mercy, mercy on thee. Nothing is going to remove the covenant of peace that I have put in place between myself and you. Verse 13. And all thy children shall be taught of the Lord, and great shall be the peace of thy children. In righteousness shalt thou be established, and thou shalt be far from oppression. For thou shalt not fear, and from terror, for it shall not come near thee. Behold, they shall surely gather together, but not by me. In other words, I need you to to understand the language here in the Hebrew. That when oppression comes and when fear rises or when terror comes, people tend to clump or cluster around that. There tends to be a gathering around that. And, And what God is telling them is saying that the people of the world shall gather. They'll gather for the wrong reason and they'll gather in the wrong place. But he said, that's not your gathering place. That's not the refuge you have. Your refuge is not in numbers. Your refuge is not in the fact that everybody's there and we're safe because everybody's there. That's not your refuge. Your refuge is in my presence. And he said, behold, they shall gather together, but not by me. I will not be, I will not be the cause of that. I will not be the reason that they assemble like that. He said, whosoever shall gather together against thee shall fall for thy sake. And behold, I have created the smith that bloweth the coals in the fire, and that bringeth forth an instrument for his work, and I have created the waster to destroy. All of the things that exist in our world, God has said, I'm behind it. But I do not treat everything the same way. For instance, everyone in the world is not underneath a covenant of peace, like he referred to in the previous part of the chapter, right? There are some nations that are going to be destroyed. And he says, you know, there are people that are living under oppression and fear and terror uh, and so forth. And he says they'll gather together, they'll have their congregating, and they'll look for their solutions, just like they did when they built the Tower of Babel. They were looking for a solution to a calamity that struck the world. I didn't build it. Guess what God's saying? I didn't build it. They built it. And they gathered together around that because they saw that as a refuge. They saw that as a place of safety. And they did that. God says, I didn't do that. They did that. But men will do that. 
That's not your place of safety. That's not where you need to turn to. And he assures us in 17, No weapon that is formed against thee shall prosper, and every tongue that shall rise against thee in judgment shalt thou condemn. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord, and their righteousness is of me, saith the Lord. I've got your back. I've got a place for you. Come on, somebody say amen. I've got, I've got a place for you. I've got a safe haven for you. I've got a place you can always turn. And this is going to be the heritage of the children of God. This is going to be uh, your destiny, is that God's got a place for you. God knew exactly what would come in the time you're living in, and God knew exactly how to get you out of it. All right, now, I need you to refer back to our, our text again here. Paul says, I count now myself to have apprehended, but this one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forth unto those things which are before, I press. And this is the phrase that I want to dwell on just for a moment here. He says, I press towards the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. So this is the, uh, the, the, uh, the verb here. This is what Paul is actually wanting to do. I, I, have, uh, I have considered myself as somebody who has accomplished a lot of things, but you know what? All of it is behind me now. It is not anything that I still hang on to and that I use as a, um, you know, an asset and coming to God. That's not the idea at all. He says, I'm forgetting those things that are behind. My, my experience, my associations, my, uh, all of that, my history, he says, I'm leaving it all behind. I have something now that I'm pressing forward to. I have something I'm trying to get a hold of. All right? Now, the word press here is a very interesting word, and I want to uh, look at the definition of it, and then we want to apply it in two different ways. The language here is very aggressive. That would be the best word I could use. It means to make or to run, to flee, to drive away. It means to run swiftly in order to catch a person, to press on figuratively, of one who in a race runs swiftly to reach the goal, to pursue in a hostile manner. We find the the idea of hostility in every paragraph here uh, on the board. In the meaning of the word press, Paul is saying that he's running after something. He's trying to reach the goal, and he's going to do it in a hostile manner. In other words, you get out of my way, or I'm going to run you over. I'm going to do whatever it takes to get here. And uh, you better not be in my way. That's, that's the idea that's conveyed in the first paragraph. In the second paragraph, it's in any way... The word press means in any way to harass, trouble, molest one, to persecute or be maltreated, suffer persecution on account of something. Wow. I mean, this is not one of those words in the Bible that are very pleasant. Paul says, I I press toward the mark. Uh, You know what? Um, I'm going to do whatever it takes. Uh, Not that I'm going to mistreat somebody here or persecute somebody here. But it, the, the word press also has the meaning whereby uh, the, the idea of a press uh, can be imposed on somebody to, to persecute somebody or to hold somebody back. And in order to do that, we're going to apply all kinds of pressure and harassment and uh, persecution in order to do that. So there's a second idea. Metaphorically, it means to pursue or seek after earnestly endeavoring to acquire something. So, I, I mean, this is one of those interesting words that you've got to stand back and take a look at. Let's apply it because the application of it will take all the mystery out of it. All right, you ready? In Matthew chapter 5, 
Jesus said, blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. All right, so let's, let's just go back for a moment here. This is that second paragraph. To harass, to trouble, to molest, to persecute, to be maltreated, and suffer persecution on account of something. So Jesus says, blessed are they which are persecuted. They're maltreated because of what they believe. They are pressured. They are tormented. They are tortured even for their faith. Blessed are ye when men shall revile you and persecute you and shall say all manner of evil uh, against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceeding glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. So this idea of press is the press that people individually or personally have felt because they stood for what was right. And they became martyrs, or they became victims of uh, the wrath of, of, of the enemy and, and, and the devil's kingdom and so forth, and these messengers. And all of that was vented against God's people. And they didn't do anything to cause that. I mean, they didn't do, you know, they were out, not out causing a problem, but this wrath of the enemy came against them. And this is that press that uh, individuals feel. Jesus says to them, he said, blessed are ye. When men shall persecute you and, and, and treat you that way. And your reward is great. He says, for, for theirs, those people, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That's a great reward. But there are people who are persecuted and there are people who persecute. In Acts chapter 9, this is the story of Saul. And he fell to the earth, Saul falling off his horse, and heard a voice saying, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? And he said, Who art thou, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus whom thou persecutest. It's hard for thee to kick against the pricks. This is the same idea, the same second paragraph in the definition there. And, and God's asking Saul, Why are you threatening me? Like, why are you persecuting me? And why are you troubling me like you can stop me? Why why are you treating my... In other words, when you treat my people this way, you are treating me this way. And Paul's intent was to take any believer he could and throw them in jail, persecute them, torture them, and stop this movement whatever way he could. And he didn't realize it was a higher power that was over all of that. And so therefore, uh, you know, Jesus says to him very simply, he says, you know, when you're, when you're doing that kind of stuff, when you're pressing my people that way, you actually are pressing me. And you're going to have to deal with the consequences of that. And so this is his idea of, of pressure and torture and persecution that comes. We find it again over in Matthew chapter 5. Or sorry, in Luke 17, we find the same passage here. And, and they shall say unto you, see here or see there, go not after them, nor follow them. The bottom of the screen. They shall say to you, see here and see there, don't pursue that. Don't go after that with a vengeance just because somebody says, uh, you know, there's a remedy here or there's a way here. Or there's a, uh, you know, a Messiah here or a message here that's, that's uh, somehow uh, something that God didn't send. Don't pursue that. And don't forsake the things that, that, are, that are God's in order to get that. If you're going to put your energy into anything, pursue this. So this is the other side of this definition. All right, so the first word, first meaning of the word press is that idea of pressure and torture and persecution that somebody would vent against a believer. The second side of this is simply the attitude that Paul has in pursuing the mark of the prize of the high calling in Christ Jesus. Okay? Everybody with me? 
This is the second side of that, that, that meaning of that word. So Paul says, see that you render, uh, that none render evil for evil for any man, but every, but ever follow that which is good, both among yourselves and to all men. Paul is now turning it around, where once he persecuted or oppressed the Christians of his time before he became one. Now he's turning it around and saying that what you need to do is don't render evil for evil. If somebody burns down your church because you believe the message of the hour, don't go find out where they live and burn their house down. And that's what Paul would have done in the past. But now he says, but ever follow that which is good, both among yourselves and to all men. Despite how you're treated, don't go back and, and, and seek vengeance and, and create pressure for somebody out there who is clearly against you. Don't do it. But rather, he says, seek good. And follow that which is good. Put your energy and your passion and your zeal and all that you have, put that into following the things that are good and right and pure and holy. Put your energy into that. First Timothy 6, he says to Timothy, But thou, O man of God, flee these things and follow after righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, and meekness. In other words, Paul is telling Timothy, we've identified what's right. You pursue it with all your heart. And you know what? You don't let anything or anyone or any circumstance get in your way. You pursue that with the same passion you pursued the Christians back here to throw them in jail. He's not using a different word. He's just using a different application. Are we okay? That's the idea. Paul is saying now we take that energy, we take that zeal, we take that energy and that desire to, to pursue the things that are right. We know what's right, and we know our God, and we know where, uh, where we're heading. He said we want to put our energy into that. Second Timothy 2.22, flee also youthful lust, but follow after righteousness and faith and charity and, and peace with them that call on the Lord out of a pure heart. And, and, he, and, he's, and he's reiterating the same thing several times. We find it 50 times uh, in the New Testament here alone where Paul's using the same word. And, he's, and his plea is that, you know what, you sought, um, you, you sought uh, the, 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 the gay life. You sought the wild life. You sought, uh, you know, uh, the victory in your causes. And the things that you wanted to live for and the things that you were passionate about. And, and Paul w- was the same way. He was religiously zealous and put everything he had into destroying that virgin early Christian movement. Right? He put all of his passion into that. And he says, now take that same passion you had for evil and pursue the things that are good and do the same thing with the same attitude. Not to destroy, but to build up. Not to discourage, but to encourage. And not to destroy, but to construct. That's his, that's his application of the word. It means two things. <clears throat> so now, let me turn a little corner here and say this. That we live in a world where, if you haven't noticed, and I'm sure that you have, Hope is quickly being drained away. Hope is, the word hope has become, in a sense, a little bit more elusive. I, I would say this to you that I, I don't think that it is appropriate for us at all to uh, 
say anything negative or derogatory at all about anybody who comes in contact with this virus or, uh, you know, contracts it. Uh, because it's all around us. And you don't, I mean, you can be as careful as you want and be as isolated as you want. And you can, you know, go down and get gas and put it in your car and pick it up there, right? Uh, I mean, it's, it's just all around us. And I don't think that we should, uh, you know, uh, be critical of anybody who's concerned even about that. Uh, I think rather the, the thing that we should do is throw them a lifeline. And, and, and I, I'm, I'm talking even more about people outside the church here, you know, outside of the faith here. But, you know, people around us, they, they look at the world. And I will tell you something, that hopelessness is a very contagious thing. Hopelessness is a very contagious thing. But I will say this, that I believe that hope is also a contagious thing. And we are a people who have a message of hope that's different than what's being conveyed in the rest of this world. And we have a message that says that, you know, when, when, when conditions change, we serve a God who doesn't. And God will show up very often contrary to the conditions that exist in our world. Now, for instance, let me say it this way, that when the children of Israel traveled, the Lord was a pillar of fire by night. Because in night time, in darkness, they needed light. God wasn't the same thing in the daytime. In the daytime, he was what? A cloud. Because he provided shade against the heat. So he doesn't come always according to how we fear. He comes very often contrary to the conditions that exist. And I believe in the world that we live in, a world especially that's essentially void of hope, God comes in an atmosphere of hopelessness with what? A message of hope. So he comes contrary to the condition and gives us the message that we have need of in our day. And you know what? I have news for you. I believe God's already given us that message of hope. I believe we have it. I believe we need to get it out and read it. I will say this, that I believe that no promise in the Scripture ever changes because of the conditions. And I think you'd agree that the conditions will lose their strength because of the promises. The promises never change because of the conditions, but the conditions lose their strength because of the promises. I think that's something worth writing down. I wrote it down and put an asterisk next to it here because I didn't have anybody to text amen to. Let me say it again. The promise never changes because of the conditions. I woke up this morning thinking about this. That the promise never changes because of the conditions. Aren't you glad? God doesn't say, I'll be with you even in you and great shall be the peace of thy children unless you do this. Or if this happened. He doesn't say that. I believe the promise never changes because of the conditions, but the conditions will lose their strength because of the promise. I don't know about you. I, I'm not a really smart person uh, in, in, a, in a worldly sense or anything like that, but I will say this, that if, if it was left up to me to try to balance all the viewpoints out there in this world as to how to figure out, you know, politically what's correct and medically what's correct and whether we should do this or whether we should do that, I, I'm not, to me, I'm not smart enough to be able to figure all that out. And I'll admit that right from the start here. And I don't think that I should put my energy into doing that at all. And I would advise you not to e equally put your energy into trying to solve all that horizontally, looking at all the different ideas and theories that are out there, and trying to wade through the messages the media is sending us to try to figure out and filter what's right and what's not. Is there anybody here who would dare to stand up and say they're smart enough to be able to wade through all of that and come up with an appropriate answer? I'm saying this. I am not putting my energy into trying to find a balance in all of that. I rather am putting my energy into looking higher than that. 
Because on one side, you have the pandemic people, and on the other side, you have the hazmat people. And you got everybody who's pretty much confused in between. And to try to come up with answers for all of that, I'll tell you what, saints of God, it, it, it is a very confusing thing. And I know this, that God is not the author of confusion. I believe common sense should reign. I believe common sense is a good thing. I believe we should wash our hands and do all the things that we have to do. But I tell you what, I believe that common sense should not be a hiding place for fear. Because God doesn't give us a spirit of fear, but the power of love and of a sound mind. And the sound mind that He has equipped us with, I believe today, is, is to look to a word that He has given to us that points to another kingdom. So that our lives and our conduct and even our direction can match that kingdom. Because that's the way He taught us to pray. Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So we want, especially in this hour, to match the things that would be done in the kingdom. We want them to match in our lives. Even if the rest of the world is doing things on other levels and for other reasons and all the other uh, entanglements that are out there that are meant like Brother Jaron said a week or two ago to drag our thoughts down and keep our thoughts down to a level that are not really kingdom thoughts. I believe that our job is not to try to figure all that out and balance all that out. I'm not smart enough to do that. And I've figured out pretty quickly that that's really not the best way that I can spend my energy. If I'm going to press after anything, I'm going to press after making my life and my thinking match the kingdom of heaven. And to think higher thoughts. But if you don't mind, I had to figure out what the word clickbait Meant. I had to ask my resident expert what clickbait means. And there's all kinds of things out there that are meant to uh, get you to click on the Internet, you know, to, to read this, read that. Exciting headlines, pictures, images, different things out there. The promise of wealth and success. And all of this to get you to click. Because a lot of money is generated, apparently, by how much you click. And, and besides that, isn't it true that the devil's job is to distract Right? I mean, at the end of the day, there are lots of distractions today. I don't need to convince you of this, that we're surrounded by headlines like this, that cause us, you know, to think about the world that we're living in. And the reason why I say about hope, that the hope, we, we live in an atmosphere of, of increasing hopelessness in our world. This is one about a South Texas hospital. They're beginning rationing COVID-19 care because the situation is so desperate. And the bottom part of this article, and this is a direct quote here, it, it says that they were so overwhelmed with patients that officials could soon start sending home those least likely to survive the disease caused by the coronavirus. They're just completely overwhelmed. I don't know whether that's still the case. It was a day or two old. I didn't realize this uh, fully until this week, but the hand of the atomic clock has moved again to 100 seconds. To midnight. Now, what I want you to do is take a minute and read the preamble with me here. This is, you can find this on their website. You can find this in their documentation. Humanity continues to face two simultaneous existential dangers. Those are dangers that exist around us in the real world around us. Nuclear war and climate change. They are compounded by a threat multiplier, which is cyber-enabled information warfare that undercuts society's ability to respond. I'll stop for a minute and just listen to this. We have two threats, two existential threats, what they're describing here, which are capable of destroying the world as we know it. And for that reason, they're moving the hands of the clock closer to midnight, closer to, uh, you know, annihilation, if you like. Uh, 
they have a sense that we're living in a time as precarious and dangerous as this. A threat multiplier is something that is coupled with something that makes the threat more dangerous, more powerful uh, than it ordinarily would be. Okay? So, for instance, if you uh, think about it this way, um, a threat multiplier, for instance, in our world today would be if a terrorist organization did something uh, and, and they, they caused, they caused a, a death or they blew up something, it would be bad enough in itself. But when the media gets a hold of it and broadcasts it everywhere, everybody, the, the, the effect of that terror act is now multiplied. It's made broader than what, it, what the actual blast itself is. So that is what's, what's referred to as, a, uh, as, as described right here. It's a threat multiplier. So, you know, the Army, the Army is the ones who have developed this. As a matter of fact, Brother Jason Watkins referred to this a while back. Uh, you know how, like, for instance, when he, I, I believe the example that he used was Shamgar. And he said that Shamgar was a believer who was an Israelite under the covenant of God. And he said in himself he was a threat to the enemy. But when that anointing came on him and he took his ox code and he killed 600, uh, 600 Philistines, then the threat multiplier was the anointing that God had put on him and made him way more dangerous than just one man uh, under the covenant. So a, a threat multiplier is something that exaggerates the size of this thing or the potential power of this thing. All right, back to the clock here. Nuclear war and climate change are compounded by a threat multiplier, which is cyber-enabled information warfare that undercuts society's ability to respond. The international security situation is dire, not just because these threats exist, but because world leaders have allowed the international political infrastructure for managing them to erode. I will tell you on good authority that some of the missiles that are in silos today are operated by and controlled by programs that are written and put on five and a quarter inch floppy disks. Some of you that are still not shaving don't know what even those terms mean. But the old folks here know what that means. And the reason is, is because they built those missiles and they built us, you know, the hardware and software to operate them and they locked them away in silos hoping never to have to use them. And so because there was treaties and all kinds of different things that were put in place, they never really updated things, and there's a lot of that stuff that's really outdated today. So that's a portion of the reason. But because of all the uh, cybersecurity that goes on, and this is a big, big issue, and some of you folks that are in IT and in that world know all about it, know much more than I do. But the, the, the ability of one nation to interfere with another nation, their elections and their social media and all the rest of it, all that stuff, that is big, big, big business now, to the point where our nation even is investing in a fifth uh, segment of the armed forces, which is the space command out here, to govern the high ground, pardon the pun, on satellites. Because there's so much activity that goes on in and through satellites that there needs to be a controlling power up there. Or, you know what, whenever there's a vacuum, whenever there's a void, these other nations will run right in and try to claim that territory. And so what they're looking at is this big picture here, and they're saying, you know what, the initial result of this, the initial outcome of this, is that this needle is moving closer to annihilation all the time. You notice they haven't mentioned the virus here at all. 
I went to some of the, just out of curiosity, I don't visit these frequently, but I went to some of the uh, major websites that are dedicated to, uh, like, interdenominationalism and what the Pope is doing and, uh, you know, that kind of thing, and to try to glean a little bit of uh, cre- uh, credible information about what's going on. And I thought this was very interesting. They, they had a picture of the, uh, the um, uh, Westminster Cathedral there, and the Archbishop of Canterbury, who's the head of the Church of England, he was chairing a working group that week who has has been urgently convened to address financial pressures from the coronavirus crisis on the Church of England. And so they were looking at that. And of course, you know, if people don't, uh, don't show up, then, you know, then there's less revenue that's generated in the church and so forth. One of the paragraphs in the article stated this, we are currently working through what financial support measures can be introduced to help the church through the crisis. Now, I don't know how that strikes you, but that strikes me kind of funny because... I think, to me, the church should be a place to help other people, not for people to have to help the church. But the church here is in a, uh, you know, the Westminster Cathedral and Westminster Abbey and, and the Church of England. Uh, you know what? They're, they become vulnerable now because they need to have so much money in order to operate. They're actually going to the government and they're looking for help here and, uh, you know, to try to stay afloat. It makes sense that Brother Branham said that one day the nations will cry out for a superman or somebody to come and solve the issues that the world faces, right? But it has to be somebody who has a lot of money. Because money is an integral part of this whole picture that we have in the end time. I found this in, uh, in Pew Research, and I trust Pew Research for the most part, and uh, found some of their information to be good. I just want you to look at two images I have here. This is the mood of the public, uh, as graphed here uh, in the last couple of weeks there, and they do polls every now and then. This is the mood of the people and how they view uh, the world and how they view things as, as they currently exist. The poll started from 2017, 18, 19, and then in the current day, and you can see that the level of satisfaction, and which is which is here. I hope I get this right. No. Yeah. The level of dissatisfaction is on the top right here, the darker line. This is a satisfied line right here, the lower one. So the top one, it just kind of carries along pretty level. You know, one thing after one year after another, the level is, the line is sort of level. And you come to this hour, and we have a huge statistical jump upwards, which is a measure of how people feel about our world, and they are saying that we are much more dissatisfied with the world we live in and the way things are going, the way things are governed, and the solutions that are out there. Statistically, if you talk to a statistician, they'll tell you that that kind of a jump, that kind of a jump right there is worth noting. That's a big deal. Conversely, The level of satisfaction that people have had been about the same over the last three years or so. And then we have a an just about an equal level of dissatisfaction among people. They're looking at at things, and these are all the factors like how secure is my job, how safe are we, uh, you know, from uh, not only nuclear threats but from the virus, and how uh, you know confident are we about the government leading and so forth. The indicators suggest that people really are pretty dissatisfied with the way things are going. <clears throat> All right? In a time like that, it would make sense that you would turn to something solid, turn to something real, or try to pursue truth in some way in the times of calamity and distress. 
Here's what's happening, though. In the U.S., the number of religious nuns has grown by nearly 30 million over the past decade. Now, you remember I referred to nuns a little while ago. They're not the, they're not the sisters who wear the black habit and the outfit and so on. The nuns are N-O-N-E-S. Those are people who, when it comes to, do you have any religious affiliation? Do you believe the Bible? Uh, do you attend church? They put down a big fat zero. It's none. I don't have any affiliation with any of that at all. Their numbers are absolutely increasing. So the religious... Here we go. The religiously unaffiliated, they have grown in their numbers by 30 million over the past year, uh, uh, over the past decade. They have gone from 39, uh, 39 million to 68 million up here in that short period of time. So there's more people moving, many, many more people moving away from the church or the Bible or Christianity than are coming to it. And so this up here is the uh, the estimated number of Christians that are identified, self-identified in the nation right now, and it, it's, it's dropped, and this drop, they say, is dramatic. Here's the, the, the line. Religious nuns, I need you to watch this, now make up fully one-third of Democrats, and about six in ten people who identify with or lean toward the Democratic Party say they attend Religious services no more than a few times a year. You know what that says? If you stop for a minute, you know what that says? It really doesn't matter. Right? I'm going because of family. I'm going because of tradition. That's all. I'm going maybe out of a little tiny sense of guilt. But you know what? That's not important in my life. I really don't care. The ranks of the religious nuns and infrequent churchgoers also are growing within the Republican Party. Stop. You know what that says to me? That says to me that the next election... And elections that follow, you're electing people who increasingly really don't care about your Bible. They really don't care about your standards. They really don't care about Christian schools. They really don't care about Christian health care. Come on. Because that is increasingly unimportant to a larger segment of our population all the time. And this is happening in a very, very fast, at a very fast pace. And by the time next year, year after comes, you can imagine now what changes in government will bring. You bring in more people there. Listen, that's not in consideration. That's not something we're concerned about. That's not something we want you to bring up. That's not something we're going to govern by are the principles that are found in the Word of God. And you know what that means to us? That means that you're more of a minority all the time. That's why we are increasingly finding ourselves in the middle of this squeeze. You see how it's happening? Brother Branham's not giving the details back there, but he says there's a squeeze coming. What you're looking at, folks, and what I'm showing you here, is the falling apart of the world. I went to a, this is a, a, a website, and I usually don't do a lot of research on the, on the Internet to, to find something specific. But this was a, a little statement here that was found on a website that was dedicated to higher-level educators. Uh, these are people who are college professors or, uh, you know, they're writers and, and leaders in the education world. And they had, this, um, they had this article on here, which was written in March of 2020, 
And uh, this fellow was writing here in relation to the virus, and this is back in March now, you've got to remember. Uh, but they were, uh, he was simply saying that uh, among my academic colleagues and friends, I have observed a common response to the continuing uh, crisis. <clears throat> they are fighting valiantly for a sense of normalcy. Stop for a minute. We as human beings, we like normal routines. As much as you may not like your routine, we like the normalcy of it. We like the predictability of our normal routines, don't we? I mean, church every Sunday, every Wednesday, we like to go to church. That's our routine. We have, we have a meal at 6 o'clock in the evening or 5 o'clock or whatever else, and we have routines. When you have uh, someone dies in your family or you have a sickness or you have, you know, uh, mom gets run over by a steamroller or something and everybody's standing around and we don't have dinner, right? Nobody knows how to cook because mom always cooked and nobody knows how to do anything. In a couple of days we got dirty clothes and then, you know, there's no more food on the shelves and everything else. You know what the problem is? The problem is your routine has changed. And we haven't put anything in place. Some of you, some of you folks are laughing. There's been nothing put in place to replace the old routine. So you know what we do? We kind of, we just kind of wander around like, uh, like somebody with their head cut off because we really don't know what to do next because our routine's been broken. I remember my, when my, uh, with my mother, my mother was a believer and my father was an unbeliever. And they lived in two entirely different worlds. My father was an alcoholic. Mom was a good Christian, very sensible, sound person all of her life. I loved them both, and I don't want you to think I I, I don't. But they were just very different, and they operated on completely different time clocks altogether, and they enjoyed completely different things altogether. But when Dad died, Dad died because he had cancer, and 20 seconds he died, got got out of his car, fell down, bled to death, and died on the side of the road. And when, when, when he died, mom, we could call mom at 2 or 3 o'clock in the morning. And mom would answer the phone, hey. And I'd say, what are you doing? So washing the walls. Why are you washing the walls? My mother used to love to wash the walls. She also ironed all the bed sheets. She was just that kind of a woman. And uh, strange, but true. And she, I asked her one time, why are you up so late in the night? Like, why are you, why are you doing this? And she said, well, you know, I had no reason to go to bed. And I had no reason to get up in the morning. In other words, her routine, as, as odd as they both were, and as different as they both lived, they still had a routine about that. And when you take away one person, there's kind of no routine left. There's no, there's no reason to cook. There's no, I mean, Sister Tracy's shaking her head here, and we all know what it's like when you lose a loved one. And you've cared for them or you live with them and some, some interruption happens. And all of a sudden, you know, it takes a while for you to develop a new normal, doesn't it? A new routine. Isn't it true we're all victims of that right now? Right? What, tell me what's normal. What's left that's normal now? You work, you work from home. You didn't work from home, right, before now. Now you work from home every day. And get up. Here's Josh Godwin there trying to put, you know, put two-by-fours up over his door to try to, you know, have an office there and have some... Have some workspace there. Teachers and, you know, all the teachers that are here that are now teaching online. Students that once went to class and now they're, now they're all doing things online. In, in a sense, we've, we've kind of lost our normalcy. And there's something about us as humans we want to get back to that normal routine. And I will tell you, that's what the message is today in our world. I found a... This is a magazine that's written by uh, scholars and uh, former politicians and so forth that's in the world, and it's called Foreign Affairs. There's, there's nothing 
nothing entertaining in this at all. It is pretty, uh, pretty complex in the writing of it. And the, the story and all of the stories, the headline and the story of this whole magazine is called The World After the Pandem- Pandemic. What it's going to be like after this is over. So I, <clears throat> I was looking in the, this is the Washington Post, the weekend Washington Post. I thought this was an interesting page, and it starts, the titles of the articles are The Great American Crack-Up, Trump's Agents Are Sweeping Peaceful Citizens Off the Street, Vladimir Putin and his, uh, his work that he's doing in, in uh, Russia, and uh, if you think that the other superpowers of the world are just sitting back and just kind of watching America fumble its way around uh, through its former domain, you had to be kidding yourself because they're rushing in to fill the vacuums of leadership in other parts of the world. And one of the things that Mr. Putin just did, and this happens to be highlighted in this article here, is that they have a constitution uh, in Russia that governs the the state over there. Peter and I ran into people who uh, knew about this. And recently, Mr. Putin added 206 articles of the new constitution to the old one, and all of them benefited him to become essentially the president for life. And as a result of that, he can outlive Joseph Stalin and uh, Catherine the Great for the longest reign. He wants to have the longest reign in Russia, which would be 36 years. Catherine the Great ruled for 34. So he's arranged it so that the Constitution allows him to reign for uh, uh, until the year 2036. Uh, interestingly enough, in our country, we would have to go through quite, a, quite an ordeal to make an amendment to the Constitution. In their country, they had the Articles of the Constitution were published and on newsstands before the vote was taken. This is the New York Times here, and this is talking about how these are Americans here lined up, and they're looking, all these people are looking for a couple of part-time jobs that are, that are given there. And they're talking about how that, uh, you know, the, uh, the, the economy, and this is all the articles that are dealing with the economy, and I'm not going to focus on that except for one quote here, which was given by uh, a lady who was a chief economist at KPMG. Now, KPMG is one of the four leading, you would know, the four leading big boy accounting firms in the world who deal with not only corporations but governments as well. And they are actually represented, have offices in 147 nations of the world. Her comment was this, if we don't slay the virus, the economic consequences could be way more devastating than what we've already seen. That was her observation. She's a person who would be in the know. Well, anyway, I've got all kinds of articles here that I brought, and I would, would not take up your time to interpret them for you. But I found this one, which I thought was interesting. This is the New York Times this weekend. It says, we interrupt this gloom to offer you hope. And the idea, the idea behind this article, very well written, very interesting is that out of all the former tragedies that have taken place in America, great things have come out of them because there was a future beyond that catastrophe. After the Great Depression, FDR took over, and there was a new deal, and there was electricity put in all the rural parts of America, and interstates were built and so forth. So there was projects that helped make America the the powerhouse that it was. And and there was hope beyond tragedies. And and the the idea and the thing I'm just trying to simply tell you is that in the world, the the overwhelming thought is, is that, (coughs) excuse me, 
is that, you know what, we, every now and then on the curve of time, we have a blip, but we'll get beyond that. Whether it's the housing crisis of 2008 or 9-11 or whatever else, we have a blip, and then we'll go on. I can, I'm here to tell you this morning, and I can't tell you definitively exactly whether we'll recover from, from this whole situation and go back to what we've referred to as normal. A lot of people really want to. But there's a part of me that says that this really is the beginning of where we're supposed to be. Where we're supposed to be is not here. We're supposed to be somewhere else. And God's got to get us from here to there. And the context of that, or the background of that, is in the time of trouble, he'll hide me in his pavilion. In the secret of his presence, in the secret of his tabernacle, shall he set me up. And, and so, David, when Brother Branham was preaching on the rapture, and reached back to Psalm 27, he brought that background for us and let us know that we're not going to leave here uh, in, a, in a circumstance where everything is prospering and everything is joyous and everything is stable. Rather, the atmosphere is one of instability, of uncertainty. Now, here's something else Brother Branham brought to us. In 1965, Brother Branham does a sermon called Doing God a Service Without Being His Will and Trying to Do God a Service Without Being His Will. Two services that he dedicates to David's attempt to bring the tabernacle into Jerusalem without consulting the prophet. You all know the story, right? And, and Brother Branham does a fabulous job at illustrating a point that I think is worth re-illustrating for us this morning. And that is this. David, this is the Bible, 1 Chronicles 13. David consulted with the captains of thousands and hundreds and with every leader. And David said unto the congregation of Israel, If it seem good unto you, and that it be of the Lord our God, let us send abroad unto our brethren everywhere that are left in the land of Israel, and with them also to the priests and Levites which are in their cities and suburbs, that they may gather themselves unto us. And let us bring again the ark of our God, for we inquired not at it in the days of Saul. And all the congregation said, Amen. They would do so, for the thing was right in the eyes of the people. The problem here is the assumption that's being made, right? David is a king. He assumes this is what God would want. This is what we need to do. We need to poll the people. We need to get everybody on the same page. And we need to get everybody with this ark and a parade and move them all to Jerusalem. And you know what? This is going to be great. And they did everything right in terms of a parade, music, uh, attendance, support, all, all of it seemed to be in place real good. The assumption was is that God was on their side. And you know what? You know who knew what, what was really God's intent? None of them knew what was God's intent. None of them, none of them knew because they had not consulted the right source. They had not gone back to Nathan the prophet. 
And the Bible doesn't even say that Nathan, Nathan knew what they should do. I mean, it doesn't, Nathan says, you shouldn't do that, you should do this. It, the Bible doesn't even declare it like that. <clears throat> they only knew by the circumstances that they were in, in the wrong place. And, and when, they, when they attempted to take the ark and pick it up, you remember in a chook, and, and uh, Uriah put his hand out there to stay, steady the ark, and he died. All of a sudden, here they are in a circumstance, and they're all, David's consulted the people who, as nice as that was, those are not the people to ask. As nice as that is, it was no benefit for David to ask the people he asked, and to have the agreement of the people he asked. I mean, that's nice if they agree, but that was not the important thing. The important thing was that they went to God first. In other words, they were not trying to do it this way. They were trying to do it this way. They needed to do it this way. David needed to look to God through that prophet and find out whether this was the time, whether this was the right season for them to move the ark into Jerusalem. So they had to lift their thoughts higher than what everybody was saying. And they had to think and look higher to God's word. Right? God's order. I'm simply saying to you that if you're depressed because you're feeding on CNN, the results of your depression is going to be your deal. I don't say that unsympathetically. I rather say this, that I think that for us as believers, it's time for us to put our training in place. And rather than looking this way at what everybody's saying, we need to be looking up here. I'm not telling you that it's not discouraging to look at the world and the headlines I've just showed you here. That's just a little portion of what's available today to look at that would ruin your day. And where all of this with the virus and the economy is all going and all the predictions that are out there. Let me tell you, the, the effort at trying to convey hope after this thing is over is very real. It's very real because people want to have their routines back. They want to have their kids back in school. They want to have a semblance of normalcy back in the world again. I get that. All human beings strive for that. Logically, that makes sense. Logically, it makes sense that America would roll on and you know, reassert itself as the major power of the world, get its act together and be strong militarily and all the rest of it. We kind of look for that. We search for that normalcy in, in our lives. I mean, that's, I get that. I understand that. But I also understand we've been trained for something different. We've been trained to go in a different direction. And that, that makes us uncomfortable. I'll be honest with you, that makes us uncomfortable. Because we are venturing into an area that nobody really has ever ventured into except Enoch. We are walking to the change of our body. And the only person we can reference is Enoch. The only thing you have to rely on is nothing you can see. Because what I see is darkness. What I see is a world collapsing. What I see is a world order out of order. Right? What we are relying on we cannot see. It does not exist for us to touch it, feel it, smell it, 
spend it, invest it, kick it, eat it. It's not contacted by the senses of our human body. Are you with me this morning? What we are relying on is the unseen power in an unseen world that has sent us promises down the pipe and vindicated the fact that the Bible is truly true. Some of you young people are going to have to climb out of your cyber bubble and the world you've created and get real with God because it's not going to be your text and your involvement on social media that's going to build faith. Some people say, I, you know, I'm pretty, I, you know, I talk pretty old-fashioned about things like that. But I'll tell you what, I have not found very much these days on WhatsApp or uh, all the rest of it that really builds good, solid faith. Now, I realize it's there. It's a necessary evil. It's like tubeless tires in Christmas. It's there. You're not going to pray it away. It's, I mean, it'll eventually go. Hopefully, it'll go with Los Angeles. But one, nonetheless, to me, my job is to give you the whole counsel of God. And the whole counsel of God says is that our hope lays not in anything we can see, touch, or feel, or smell, or hear. Our hope lays in something that's entirely unseen, contacted by faith, and entered into by the same. Can I go a little further? Brother Ranham says in his own church here, 1965, same sermon, I'm, I'm, I'm talking to 99% Pentecostals. What does that mean? That means that a lot, of, a lot of times, a lot of those people are stimulated by or motivated by what they feel or see or hear or what they experience in a church setting. I'm not being critical, all right? So in other words, with David back there saying, hallelujah, and he's got, you know, a tambourine in his hand and he's got a revival where the whole country is there. The whole country is behind him. And everybody's, everybody's on the same page. And everybody's in the same revival as David is. And here's Brother Branham. He says, I'm talking to 99% Pentecostals. In other words, you folks can feel as good as you feel and be flat wrong. Can you imagine how that must have been, like nails on a chalkboard to those people? You need to get this message and take a look at it. But man, many times a man, God can deal with them and give them a gift And the people will squeeze in on those people. And if they're not perfectly called and sent of God, he'll cause that man or woman to say something that isn't his will because the people constrains or presses him to do it. Brother Branham had the same problem with Brother Neville at his church, who was the associate pastor there, and had, the, had a gift of discernment. And how I had to catch our own pastor on it, out here in the woods one morning about 3 a.m., and he says, go tell Brother Neville. And I came to you, didn't I, Brother Neville? And Brother Neville had people who were pressuring him to prophesy things they wanted to hear. A good man. That's what he's, what he's affirming here. He says, people like this, it can be a good man. But if they're not perfectly called and sent of God, let me ask you this question. Aren't you glad Brother Branham was perfectly sent and called of God? It's amazing how people will discredit the ministry that was perfectly sent and established by God. And the word of the Lord came to him. I'm glad that he was sent of God. I'm glad he was established of God. Because no matter what, they couldn't squeeze him with money. They couldn't squeeze him with popularity. Come on. They couldn't squeeze him with traps of the enemy. And they came to his door and knocked on his door and wanted to hand him checks. And he wouldn't even touch it. The FBI people that were there, they couldn't squeeze him. Let me tell you, that to me, that gives me confidence in the message I'm quoting to you this morning. 
Not that I don't believe that Brother Neville is going to be there. I believe he will be there. We have relatives in, in our church here who belong to Brother Neville. Let me tell you something. I believe that he'll be there. But Brother Random is saying that for a lot of people, they have to always consistently come back to CNN to find out what's going on. No. This is not time to say yes. This is the time to say no. Because that's not our absolute. What our friends are doing on social media is not the absolute. Where we are going and what we are doing, let me tell you, I applaud somebody who takes the time to wait on God and find out exactly where they should be because we don't, let me tell you, the bride is going to be made up of people who are perfectly called and sent of God. How many believe that? The bride of Christ is going to be perfectly called, sent of God, established in the Word, and they're going to be believing in the unseen despite what everything else is happening around them. That's why Jesus tells us to search the Scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life. Search, the, the, word, the concept of search is a great thing. Now, for a moment here, let me conclude this part and just say this. In Deuteronomy chapter 13, they're going into the promised land. Here's the advice that Moses gives them. If thou shalt hear say, in any of the cities which the Lord thy God hath given thee to dwell there, if you go into one of the cities that God's given you in the promised land, certain men, children of Belial, are gone out from among you, and have withdrawn the inhabitants of their city, saying, Let us go and serve other gods which ye have not known. If you go into a city, and people who are backsliders here, sons of Belial, have gone out from you. That's what he says. They've gone out from among you, and have withdrawn the inhabitants of the city. They've actually influenced this city away from the principles of this whole first exodus. Then thou shalt inquire, and make search, and ask diligently... And behold, I mean, this is what the Bible says here. And behold, if it be truth, and a thing certain, that such abomination is wrought among you, thou shalt surely smite the inhabitants of that city. Wow. With the edge of the sword, destroying it utterly, and all that is therein, and the cattle thereof, with the edge of the sword. We're not going to let anything live in that city that has been drawn away, because you want to learn to slay whatever influence influences you away from the truth in that hour. In the hour when you're supposed to be putting your foot on God's ground and putting yourself in the promised land where God has ordained you to be, when you find something ahead of you that pulls you away from that principle, slay it. Slay it fast. Slay it all. If something has an influence over you that drags you down, slay it. Slay it fast. Slay it all. Because it'll only drag you down when you get inside the city there. It'll only drag you down uh, to where, uh, you know, it, it, it's going to destroy you and, and uh, you know, cause you to uh, believe the things that are not true. about. The... Hey, listen, this is not a time to be influenced by the wrong side. We're not now to, I mean, if you have a friend that doesn't believe the message, please, please, don't go and shoot him after service. Don't go do that. If we take this and we apply it in our own lives, let me tell you something. I believe that the thing that we should do is, is, is now, there's probably not a better time for us to kind of look around and say, uh, you know, there are things in my life that influence me away from the truth. There are things in this life that drag my thinking down to this level. When I see from the Word of God, I should be thinking a little higher. That's all. Do that. And find those things that are causing you to move this way and deal with them with the sword. 
He's not talking about a passive response. He doesn't say, go, and if they don't receive you, bring somebody else and go, and talk to them and try to... He doesn't say that. He said, haul out your sword and even kill the cows they own. I mean, I'm just saying what the book says. I find it I find it extraordinary. Let me give you a little portion of a quote here. I find it extraordinary how true Brother Branham's statements are the longer I read them. Not that I didn't believe them before, not that I didn't think they were untrue, not that I didn't think they were they were true before. I believe they were true. I just think they're more truer now. There, there somehow or another, God's, God's turned the light up. You know, it's, this is, this is uh, letting off the pressure. Uh, excuse me, let me go back here. Letting off the pressure. Sorry, lost it there, Jeremy, if you could bring it back for me. Brother Bram's talking about an emergency that came up among his people, and there was a little boy who was killed, and a, tra- a trailer backed over him. And uh, he describes it here, and he talks about Brother Blair in this, uh, in this quote. And he said he read a letter. He, Brother Bram was, was, had been away. He's, again, he's in trying to do God a service. And he said they were out working a bunch of men. They were trying to wire a trailer. And uh, the trailer got away from the blocks that were there and ran over the boy, and the boy was dead. And, and he said the father even skinned his fingers trying to get the boy's mouth open and all the other things, that, the details here. And he says immediately their response was they said, you know, go find Brother Branham, get him on the phone, we'll have him pray. And uh, then he said, uh, he said, we realized that God is a very present help in the time of trouble. And so they got together and he said, God bless those faithful men. They got together and they knelt down right on the spot and they prayed for that little boy. And that boy was, came back to life and was living, sitting in the congregation there. And he said, in a time of an emergency, that's the time to look to God and look to him. Be on friendship with him, friendship terms with him before the emergency arrives. You don't need to go find out if God's real, if God answers prayer. You know God answers prayer. You know that God is real. You know that you can reach out and have an appointment with God anytime at all. We know this. If we have favor with God, we can ask him anything like you would any other friend. And he's a very present help in the time of trouble. Here's my advice to you. And we can have our musicians come if that would be all right. Watch what he says. God could ever get a man, woman today in this tabernacle or anywhere else that will pay no attention to what's going on around them, but submit themselves to the Lord as an individual unit. God will lead that same man today that he led then. Same way that God led a man before, God will lead a man today. What's he got to do? He's got to pay no attention to the things that goes on around him. You say, Brother Barry, I don't need to wash my hands. Yes, you do. And we have to distance and we have to use common sense because I think common sense is, is uh, part, of, uh, part of life. And you know, Let me tell you, you don't want to go out and pick up a snake and say, hey, that's faith. You know what that is? That's stupid. You don't want to play with snakes. You can laugh all you want, but there's people who do it. And there's people who do it even with the, uh, you know, with the current situation that we have here. I don't want to do anything stupid, and I don't want you to do anything stupid. 
I want to keep our church open. But he says, if the people, he says, a man and a woman, they'll submit themselves to the Lord as an individual unit. And God will lead that same man, the same man today that, that he led then. He proves he's with us. What we need today is more media coverage. No, what we need today is a humble, submitted life. Submit yourself. Don't squeeze yourself back. Don't do nothing but lead straight with the Holy Spirit. What the Spirit says do, do quickly. Don't say, well, I'll wait and I'll find out about this and what that is and so on. What the Holy Spirit says do, go do it. And let me tell you something. The Holy Spirit is committed to getting you there even more than you're committed to getting there. He's more committed to getting you there than even you are to get there. You say, I want to get there with all my heart. He wants to get you. Remember what he said back to Israel in Isaiah 54? He said, you know, I judged you, but I'm back. And, you know, there was a time of punishment, but I'm here to show mercy. And I hid my eyes from you, but you can see me now. He wanted Israel to know that he loved them more than they loved him. He wanted Israel to know that, you know what, even if we make mistakes, I'm still here, I still love you. And I'm here to tell you this morning that I believe that God wants to get you there even more than what you want to get there yourself. It's a lesson. And it's a lesson that we had to be reminded of continually. That it's easy to get our eyes on the things that are around us. But I will tell you something. That the circumstances and the conditions never change a promise. But the promise, the, 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 the situations around us lose their strength because of the promises. Let's stand on our feet. Let's sing this morning. Let's just worship Him. Lord, I want to love You more than I ever had before. You're so easy to adore. your prayer today than I ever have before. You're so easy to adore. Lord, I want to love you more. And Lord, I want to know you more than I ever have Oh, you're so easy to adore, Lord, I want to know you more, and Lord, I want to serve you more than I ever have before, you're so easy to again. Yes, Lord, I want to love you more than I ever have before.
We sing praises to your name. We sing praises to your name. Praises to your name. Oh Lord, for your name is great. Be praised. messages that are out there. I give myself away. All these different messages out there. You know what? If I was a politician today, if I was running for the head office and I didn't know this message, I'd be, I'd be preaching the same message of hope that they, that they are. I'd be saying, give me the steering wheel if I was a, a politician. Give me the steering wheel. I can drive us to, to, to <clears throat> familiar ground. I'll take us to familiar ground. And that's what the message is. I'm going to take it to familiar ground. I hear the Holy Spirit saying to us, let me have the steering wheel in your life, because the nation doesn't want to give me theirs. But let me have yours, and let me take you to higher ground. Let me drive you to higher ground. I know where I'm going. I know where this thing winds up. Do we want to let go? Let me tell you, there's a part of me that really wants to get out of this. Because you know what? There's not really much left to live for. But there's a part of me that doesn't want to let go. Let's be honest. There's a part of us that thinks about going into the unknown, into ground we've never stepped on before, that nobody's ever stepped on except Enoch, prior to a cataclysmic global destruction. And, and here's Enoch walking with faith, pleasing God. He's not worried about anything else. He's just looking all the time. Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Every day, walk with a testimony that he pleased God. He's the only one. The rest of the world, I mean, Noah's there, but the rest of the world are all moving in a certain direction. And Noah, or Enoch's looking, walking like this. 
He's just walking like this. Everybody else is walking like this. No rain. There's no rain. And there's not going to be any rain. And Enoch's walking like this. Because he's given the steering wheel to somebody that's leading him on higher ground. Are you ready? You ready to go to higher ground? Hey, there's a part of me that says amen, and there's a part of me that says gulp. Let's be honest. I mean, we're just humans. Here I am. Here I stand. Lord, my life is in your hand. Lord, I want to see your desires revealed in me. So I give myself away. myself away so you can use give myself away give myself said as an individual unit before God as just one person Lord our hearts bowed before you Lord take us I pray and lead us Lord into the realm of faith Lord that we've never experienced before a faith that's strong enough even to change our body and pull us into a dimension Lord where we belong 
Father, help our unbelief. Help us, Lord, I pray, in making the steps, Lord, that go contrary to this world, and contrary to the way everybody else is looking. But, Lord, you've taught us to look to that absolute. You've taught us, Lord, to look to the cross. You've taught us to look to Christ. You've never taught us to look to a prophet and the individual as a man or, Lord, as pastors and, and individuals, Lord. We are here today saying, Lord, we are looking to you. We are, we are desiring to have the guidance of the Holy Spirit in our lives as an individual unit that will bring us into the place we belong. We love you, Lord Jesus. We love you with all of our heart. We believe, Lord, that by your grace and by the predestinated plan of Almighty God, we shall make it. And there are not enough forces in hell or on earth that are unleashed to stop us. But we shall be there. We say today, Lord, together as a people, I'm going to make it because you've already said it, Lord. And like your prophet said, to God, a spoken word is as, all, is as good as if it's already come to pass. And Lord, that's where our faith rests today, in the spoken word of Almighty God. Give us the courage to believe. Give us the courage to put one foot in front of the other. Give us the courage, Lord, to go forward, I pray. And Lord, may you just take away anything, Lord, that would hinder. Like, like the children of Israel, when they went into a city, Lord, and they saw the unbelief there, they would just put it to the sword. Lord, may we destroy anything that destroys our faith and undermines our, undermines our thinking, Lord. May, God, we raise our eyes higher and look to you, Lord, and the promises on another horizon. Give ourselves to you, Lord, afresh. Lord, I pray you bring healing to those that need it, Lord. Not only those that are experiencing sickness, but Lord, those that are experiencing loss and suffering, those that are concerned about their jobs and different situations, Lord, moving into a time, oh God, where uh, things are very uncertain. But uh, Lord, we, we, we just want to hold them up in prayer today and, and ask, oh God, that you'd give them the consolation of your presence. Lord, we as a bride, we are not living... In a time of uncertainty, Lord, we believe we have a certain sound that has been given to us. And Lord, may we convey, may we profess that message of hope to a world that's floundering in hopelessness. May our hope be contagious. In the name of Jesus, I pray. In the name of Jesus Christ, we commit the people to you. Amen. And amen. I'm gonna make it He's already said that I will And I'll keep on trusting That He's working everything for my Beside me, and heaven is in my view. Oh, I'm gonna take it through. Sing it again now, one more time. Yes. 
believe that now today, just slip your hand up and say, that's me, that's me we're singing about. Yes, Lord, I believe it. I trust in that. I trust your word, Lord. I'll keep on trusting that he's working everything for my Beside me, and heaven is in my view. Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Trying to go. Trying to find a place to stop. I appreciate your attentiveness today and appreciate your zeal for the things of God. Appreciate your willingness to do whatever it takes to get to where we need to go. hope be contagious. May you not be ashamed to spread the good news that we have to people around you. God's placed you in a community or in a work or a school or an environment where the only thing that people have these days is questions. Not too many people have a certain sound. You do. Let your, let your soundness show on your face and let people ask you, Why are you so content? Why are you so settled? You can tell them, not anything I did. Not anything I did. Let's sing this this morning as we go, and may the Lord richly bless you. We fall down. We'll see you Wednesday night. Of Jesus.
to see. 